This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Lost Episode 6 It's that time of year again, friends. It's time for us to take the week off due to a food-induced torpor as a result of the yearly American celebration of Thanksgiving. And it's time for you to pick over our leftovers. What follows in the tradition of our lost episodes are scraps that didn't quite make it into some of our previous episodes presented in no particular order. Enjoy. Quietly. We're trying to sleep here. Easily one of the most significant omissions from our recent episodes is a failure to describe the poor fellow soldiers of Christ in the Temple of Solomon, also known as the Knights Templar. This story failed to appear in the episode entitled Mercenary. The story of the Knights Templar actually begins almost six centuries before the founding of the Order, and it begins with an ancient city with a long, bloody history of conquest. That city is Jerusalem. Jerusalem's history begins with a small settlement near a cave containing a natural spring known as the Gihon Spring. The cave and the settlement are located partway between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea on a plateau in the mountains of Judea in the Middle East. And the fact that the settlement was founded as far back as the year 5000 BCE makes it one of the oldest cities in the world. The city was greatly improved by the mid-1500s BCE by the Canaanites who called it home. And at that time it became allied with and then subservient to the Kingdom of Egypt. But Egypt's powers declined and Jerusalem gradually regained its own independence. In the year 1000 BCE, a tribe known as the Israelites managed to capture the city and bring it under the control of King David. And it was at that time that it became the capital city of the Kingdom of Israel. The city was attacked several times, conquered by the Persian Empire, taken by the Greeks during their wars with the Persians, it became an independent state ruled by the Maccabees, fell under Roman rule during the era of Christ and the founding of Christianity, and then passed to the Byzantine Empire after the sundering of the Roman Empire, during which time it became central to the Christian faith, more or less, and then it was briefly taken by Persians again. And that brings us around to the mid-600s, and the rise of the Muslim faith and the Muslim conquest of the Middle East. Jerusalem was conquered by the Arab Caliphates as a result of an interpretation of a prophecy by the Prophet Muhammad. By the mid-11th century, the Caliphate had raised the Christian churches in the city and ejected all Christians. That sets the stage for the retaking of Jerusalem by the Holy Roman Empire and by Europe at large. And the series of resulting wars, with Europe attempting to retake Jerusalem and other parts of the Middle East and Asia Minor, and the Muslim Caliphate trying to expand its holdings in Asia Minor and into Europe, is what we call the Crusades, ladies and gentlemen. In 1099 CE, the First Crusade ended with the retaking of Jerusalem by the armies of the Holy Roman Empire. Christian pilgrims from Europe began visiting what they viewed as the Holy Land, the birthplace of their faith. But the trip required the pilgrims to pass through, or very close to, Muslim-controlled territories. Given the massive war that had just happened, the Muslims weren't friendly to Christian travelers. Many were robbed or killed during their pilgrimage. So around 1118 CE, a French knight named Hugues de Payen gathered a small group of his relatives and friends and founded an order of knights called the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ in the Temple of Solomon. 
That bit at the end, the Temple of Solomon, was an ancient temple that had been constructed by King Solomon of the Israelites and was also known as the First Temple because it was, in fact, the first holy site the Israelites constructed after their freedom from enslavement in Egypt. The temple was destroyed, rebuilt, and destroyed again. To date, no archaeological evidence has been recovered regarding the temple. But that's because the site of the temple, known as the Temple Mount, is considered a holy site by the Israeli government and no archaeological explorations have been allowed. But we digress. The poor fellow soldiers of Christ were allowed to build their headquarters on the Temple Mount, supposedly on or near the site of the Temple of Solomon, by the ruler of Jerusalem, Baldwin II. And the knights took on the duty of protecting Christian pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem. In 1129, the group received an official endorsement from Abbot Bernard of Clairvaux, and eventually this led to an official sanctioning by Pope Innocent II. The knights were granted special rights, which exempted them from various taxes, freed them from any authority except that of the Pope himself, and allowed them to build their own sanctuaries. The knights themselves kept to an austere code of conduct and a simple style of dress. They swore oaths to poverty, chastity, and obedience. They eschewed alcohol, gambling, and even swearing, and they also established an impressive banking network. You heard that right. They established a bunch of banks across Europe and in Jerusalem. Basically, a pilgrim in Europe could deposit money in a Templar bank in their home country and then withdraw money in Jerusalem. Thus, they didn't have to fear being robbed during their travels. Basically, the Knights Templar invented the concept of traveler's checks. Well, sort of. Actually, traveler's checks weren't invented till about 1770, but that's neither here nor there. As a result of all this, the Knights Templar amassed a great deal of wealth and financial influence. And that brings us around to where we picked up the story of the Templars in the mercenary episode. France got mad because the Knights were very rich and exempt from taxes. And so the Templars became mercenaries and pirates. Except for the secret ones who hid a treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence for Nicolas Cage to find. Oh, it might also interest you to know that not all members of the Knights Templar were actually aristocratic knights from wealthy and powerful European families clad in white and sporting red crosses on their tabards. In fact, only one out of every eight members of the Templars were such knights. A further one out of every eight Templars were well-educated clerics. They generally wore green robes with the red Templar cross. Those were the folks who handled the Templars' business affairs and the banking system. Interestingly, many were descended from Phoenician traders who had settled in the lands of present-day Lebanon. Equally interestingly, their ancestors included some Phoenician stonemasons who had supposedly built King Solomon's temple way, way back in the day. So who were the remaining Templars? Well, they were skilled soldiers who would follow the knights into battle. And many were also laborers and craftsmen. They worked the farmlands, maintained the order's arms and armor, built and repaired their fortifications, and so on. Those members wore brown or black robes. And that pretty much covers the Knights Templar. We left a lot out of our werewolf episode. But to be fair, we told you that would happen. Like dragons, there are lots of cool stories about werewolves and shape changers that come from a lot of cultures across the world. Now, we don't want to fill an entire lost episode with weird stories that didn't make the final cut. But there is one fascinating story that we left out only with great reluctance. See... 
it isn't the story of a werewolf. It's the story of an entirely different weird thing. And one that helped archaeologists uncover an entirely forgotten civilization that was central to the history of the Mesoamerican cultures. The creature is the weird jaguar. And the culture it helped us uncover was the ancient Olmec civilization. Until 1867, no one had a clue that the Olmec civilization had ever existed. And that's a shame, because they were pretty much the first human civilization in Mesoamerica. They laid the foundations for all of those other Mesoamerican civilizations you hear about in school. The Maya, the Inca, the Aztecs, and so on. They lived on the southern shore of the Gulf of Mexico between 1500 BCE and about 500 BCE. The problem was that most of the cities they built were claimed by the civilizations that came after them, or else the ruins of their cities were built over by other civilizations. So in many places, the Olmec civilization was essentially paved over by everyone who came later. The few remaining Olmec ruins that weren't buried under layers and layers of other cities were badly ruined and lost in the jungles of Veracruz. The only sign that there had been a precursor civilization that had been completely lost in the mists of ancient history was an enormous head carved from basalt in the village of Trezapote. It was discovered by a traveler named Jose Melgar Isarano, and the head didn't match the art style of any of the other relics in the area. It was more primitive and oddly shaped. Speculations ran wild. Given the strange facial features, some thought it was a sign that Central and South America had been settled by Africans who had crossed some submerged land bridge between the continents at the dawn of time. But otherwise, the head was just a curiosity. In 1930, archaeologist and explorer Matthew Sterling began excavating around Trezapote, as well as sites at San Lorenzo and La Venta. The sites were believed to be of Mayan origin, but he discovered many odd relics buried very deeply under layers and layers of ruins. He realized that he was digging down through various civilizations to the bottom, to the founders of the Mesoamerican civilization. And radioactive carbon dating in the 1950s confirmed the age of the oldest relics he discovered at these sites dated back to at least 1000 BCE. But what really caught his attention were various depictions of what have become known as weird jaguars. Basically, the icons and statues depicted mostly human heads, but with a cleft brow and a prominent downturned mouth and muzzle. The strange face matched that of the basalt head at Trezapote. More relics were unearthed, and each showed a fascination with the jaguar form and featured prominent worshipful depictions of half-human, half-jaguar beings. Often, they were carved with mysterious X-shaped glyphs in their eyes. And while there are many theories as to what the glyph might represent, from the underworld to rulership to the ability to see in the dark to a symbol of the Olmec kingdom itself, no two historians seem to agree on an explanation. But that they were fascinated by jaguars and jaguar people and that those figures were greatly respected can't be denied. Today, the most prominent theory is that the Olmec people believed they were descended from a jaguar god, and their ruling families were considered to be direct descendants of said god. It has been suggested that perhaps the ruling family had some prominent physical facial feature or defect that made them resemble the weird jaguars in their art. Interestingly, other relics have been turned up that depict children whose features are mixed with other animal features. 
often in the arms of weird jaguars. These include weird bird children, weird fish children, and weird crocodile children. Some scholars have suggested these might signify the children of unions between the ruling Olmec families and the rulers of other tribal groups. But they may also depict sacrifices to various gods. Ultimately though, the Olmec civilization is so ancient and so little archaeological evidence of them remains that we just can't be sure. And we may never know. While we're on the subject of digging up the past, one of the things we had to cut from our most recent episode about willow bark and the history of medical treatment was the recent history of the practice of gardening. Yes, gardening. As in growing decorative flowers and plants in an outdoor space for pleasure. Because, like remedies for fevers and bandages that stick to your skin but not your wound, gardens have been around for a long time. But if it weren't for ancient medical practices, gardening might not have survived to the modern day in the West. The ancient Egyptians are believed to be the first gardeners. That's not really surprising, because their first gardens served lots of different purposes. And they didn't distinguish between pleasure gardens and produce gardens. So, in their gardens, they might have grapevines, date palms, fig and nut trees, and pomegranate trees from which they could get some of their favorite foods. And they would plant these trees in rows and wall them in and use them as relaxation spaces as well. Because shade from trees is very valuable if you live in a hot and arid climate like ancient Egypt. Then, the Egyptians would plant useful herbs between the trees and around the edges of the garden. They would derive their spices and medicines from those. And they liked water. Water is cooling and nice to look at, so they often added ponds. And then, because they believed that their gods liked gardens and each god preferred different flowers, they would also plant those around. Poppies and roses and irises and daisies. Thus, an ancient Egyptian garden was a shady, relaxing space where you could also get your medicine and produce and keep the gods happy. Of course, they didn't create the most famous garden in the world. That honor goes to the Assyrians and the Babylonians who lived in what is now Iraq. Their upper class loved gardens, but they preferred more formal gardens over the Egyptians' everything-in-the-kitchen-sink style. They too appreciated shade trees and planted palms and cypresses. And they irrigated their gardens with canals and cultivated decorative flowers and creeping vines. These Assyrian and Babylonian gardening traditions led to that aforementioned most famous garden in the world. In around 600 BCE, the wife of King Nebuchadnezzar of the city-state of Babylon, a woman named Amiatis, got homesick. She'd grown up in the mountains, and Babylon was as not mountainous as you could get, what with it basically being a floodplain. So he built her a giant terraced garden on the side of a ziggurat. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon. At least, so the story goes. See, we have no evidence, except for some descriptions in what are essentially ancient Greek tourism guides, that the Hanging Gardens actually existed. And we're not being facetious when we say ancient Greek tour guides, either. Did you know that what we now call the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World started as a list of things you absolutely had to see before you died if you were a Greek traveler around the first century BCE? Seriously. At that time, it was popular for Hellenic Greek poets, scholars, and authors 
to compile lists of tourist attractions from around the world that were absolutely worth seeing. There were innumerable such lists. And, for some crazy reason, such authors loved listing exactly seven entries. They just had a thing for top seven amazing places to go lists. It was like an ancient Greek buzzfeed, only not nearly as reprehensible. It wasn't until the Renaissance that the various lists were pared down by scholars and authors into one definitive list. In case you're curious, the seven wonders of the ancient world are the Great Pyramid of Khufu at Giza, which is the only one that still exists intact today, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which may never have existed, the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, which was burned and plundered in 262 CE, the Statue of Zeus at Olympia, which was moved to Constantinople and then destroyed in the 6th century CE, the Mausoleum at Halicarnassus, which was ruined in an earthquake sometime around the 13th century CE, the Colossus of Rhodes, which was partially destroyed in an earthquake in 226 BCE, and the Lighthouse at Alexandria, which, wait for it, was destroyed in an earthquake in 1303 CE. And that's the problem with relying on tour guides that are two millennia old. Things change. But we were talking about gardens and the history of gardening in Europe. The Greeks weren't actually too big on gardening. They didn't bother. They had orchards and vineyards and vegetable plots, but they didn't do the garden for pleasure thing. And gardening might never have reached Europe if not for the Roman conquest of Egypt in the year 30 BCE. When the Romans saw the Egyptian gardens, they fell in love with them, and they went garden crazy. Wealthy Romans built vast gardens on the grounds of their villas and palaces. In towns and cities, their houses included elaborate courtyards called atria, with colonnaded porches, pools, fountains, and flower beds. They grew acanthus, crocus, hyacinth iris, lavender, lilies, myrtle, narcissus, poppy, violet, and many other flowers. They also loved vines, and most of all, they loved hedges. And that led them to develop the art of topiary. Topiary comes from the Latin word topiarius, which literally means decorative garden or thing that has to do with a decorative garden. And that comes from the Greek word topia, which means field, or more generally, place. Topiary refers to the art of trimming shrubs, trees, and hedges into decorative shapes. The Romans spread their love of gardening across the empire. They even brought the practice, along with numerous new plants, to Britain when they started conquering those lands. And then the Roman Empire collapsed. Europe passed into the medieval period, and the practice of gardening for pleasure vanished for hundreds of years. And it might have stayed vanished if it hadn't survived in one place. Medieval monasteries. It survived because the monks, among the many scholarly practices they preserved and expanded from the ancient world, grew medicinal herbs and plants. And they too found their herb gardens were excellent places to relax and enjoy nature. In the 13th century, the practice of growing herb gardens for medicine and pleasure spread beyond the monastery walls. Once again, the wealthy started to grow gardens for both practical and pleasurable purposes. Then in the 16th century, with growing popularity of classical ideas and the burgeoning Renaissance, the elite of Europe rediscovered the Roman garden. And then things got really creative. It was during this period that the hedge maze came into fashion, 
in imitation of the Roman topiary style, amped up to 11. Grottos, little cave-like buildings, and hideaways became popular in gardens. And another popular practice was the water joke. The water joke was a hidden fountain that would spray an unsuspecting visitor with a small jet of water as they came around a corner. What fun! In the 18th century, in Europe, people rebelled against the formality of the elaborate gardens of the aristocracy, and a return to a more natural style of garden occurred. During this period, gardens became more wild and rough. The most famous gardener of the period, Lancelot Capability Brown, said that he felt the purpose of a garden was to improve nature, not to rework it, to remove the roughness of the terrain, but to otherwise preserve its nature. He said a true garden should be indistinguishable from natural landscape. And this led to the rise of wild, tangled English-style gardens with their meandering garden paths that take sudden dips and turns and wander aimlessly far and wide. And speaking of garden paths, we should bring this particular garden path aimless wandering to a close. We hope you've enjoyed this little taste of our Thanksgiving leftovers. And before we slip back into a tryptophan coma, we'd like to take this opportunity to thank you, our listeners, for coming back week after week to follow our verbal garden path wanderings. And thank you also to our Patreon supporters for keeping this show alive. We wish you and yours a safe, happy, and healthy holiday season. Whatever holidays that might include. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.